0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read.
1: Davis High was a forbidding rock pile that housed a remarkably modern plant. The Science Wing alone had been funded at $1.5 in last year's budget. The classrooms, which still held the ghosts of the WPA workers who had built them and the post-war kids who had first used them, were furnished with modern desks and soft-glare blackboards. The students were clean, well-dressed, vivacious, affluent. Six out of ten seniors owned their own cars. All in all, a good school. A fine school to teach during the sicky 70s. It made Center Street vocational trades look like darkest Africa. But after the kids were gone, something old and brooding seemed to settle over the halls and whisper in the empty rooms. Some black, noxious beast, never quite in view. Sometimes, as he walked down the wing four corridor towards the parking lot with his new briefcase in one hand, Jim Norman thought he could almost hear it breathing. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. Thank you for coming back to the podcast to join me as I read and review Sometimes They Come Back. Stephen King's short story from the Night Shift Collection, originally published in the March 1974 edition of the men's magazine Cavalier. Sometimes They Come Back tells of 25-year-old high school English teacher Jim Norman. After witnessing one of his students being victimized by others at a rough school, Jim suffered a mental breakdown. Now recovered, Jim has gotten a new job at the much more luxurious and safe Harold Davis High School. It's a cushy job, and most of Jim's classes involve smart, college-bound students who are engaged with their studies. But for the last class of the day, Jim is given the high school's Living With Lit class, a class for what they call the, quote, slow learner, unquote. There are some good kids in there, like Bill Stearns, students who try to learn and get A's in these easier classes. But the majority of the students in Living With Lit are belligerent delinquents who'd rather be anywhere else, including many of the school's football players. But for the fall semester, the job seems to be going fairly well. However, after the holiday break, Jim finds out that Bill Stearns, one of the good students in Living With Lit, died, hit by a car while returning a Christmas gift. And conveniently enough, there's a new transfer to the school who will be taking Bill's seat in Jim's seventh period. That student is Robert Lawson, an antisocial student with a low IQ and a long list of disciplinary trouble. Lawson comes from Milford High School in Stratford, Connecticut, the town where Jim grew up. But more, Jim thinks Lawson may be the same kid who killed Jim's older brother back in the 1950s. When Jim was 9, his 12-year-old brother, Wayne, was mugged and killed by some greasers. Jim barely escaped the gang, and in the 16 years since, Jim has relived his brother's death countless times in his nightmares. He remembers the faces of Wayne's murderers, all of whom escaped conviction, and one of them had a red birthmark on his chin, just like Robert Lawson. Jim knows it makes no sense, Wayne's killers would have to be in their 30s, and Lawson is still a teenager. But then another good student in Jim's class dies mysteriously, and in comes another transfer from Milford, another of the Hoods who killed Wayne. A third student disappears, and a third gang member from Milford appears, and Jim's digging reveals there is no Milford High School, but rather a Milford Cemetery in Stratford. Three of the four Hoods who mugged and killed Wayne were killed in a car crash themselves six months later, And now these three are back to finish what they failed to do 16 years earlier and have Jim join his big brother Wayne in the grave. Will these three succeed in their wraithly revenge? Well, Constant Listener, you know I attempt to keep these reviews as spoiler-free as possible, so you'll have to read this 30-page short if you want to see how it ends. But I will warn you that some of the events in the story's climax will be revealed in this podcast, so if you want to remain completely spoiler-free, here's a good time to press pause, read the story, and come back in a half hour to hear my thoughts. And reading the story won't be a waste of your time if you're a fan of King's. I do think this is a story the author's fans will enjoy. After all, from the plot summary alone, it should be evident that this story is full of King iconography. Most specifically, King's novels The Shining and It, as well as his novella The Body, and a few others. I'll walk through the comparatives, though I think they're pretty obvious. Like his novel It... Sometimes they come back as a story that's told in two time periods. The majority of the story takes place in the early 1970s, present day when the story was published. But there is an extended dream, told strangely in the second person, where Jim recalls the murder of his older brother. These events, this encounter with evil forces in the 50s, in this case a gang of hoods, comes back in modern times. That fateful event must be relived for evil to be defeated this same structure, including the setting of the 50s, would be done again with King's It. As would a character with a dead brother. In the book It, George Denborough is the first character killed by the monster in 1957. Bill's older brother George is the one who must face the supernatural force and avenge his brother. Here, in Sometimes They Come Back, it's the older brother killed by the greasers, but the echo is there. And as I've mentioned before, death of a sibling, often a brother, is a recurring motif in King's fiction. This is likely, as King himself has an older brother, so growing up with that dynamic is something familiar to the author, from which he can draw for emotion. But more, when he was four, King reportedly witnessed one of his friends killed by a train. King returned home in shock, and has no memory of the event today, but his family has told him repeatedly of how he came home speechless, and they later found out why. Dead brothers appear in Salem's Lot, It!, word processor of the gods, the wedding gig, Christine, the list goes on. But to me, the story where King made the best use of a dead brother was in The Body, King's 1982 novella that most people know better by the film adaptation Stand By Me. There, Gordy, the narrator, is estranged from his parents after his older brother died in a car crash. That relationship, Gordy's feelings about his brother, are a central part of that character's development in The Body, Hence why I feel it's King's best instance. But let's look at the body. That's a story set almost completely in the 1950s. Now, King came of age in the 50s, so it makes sense to me that when he tells stories about people's childhoods, he'd reference his own in that time period. And that's exactly what he does with Jim Norman, a character a few years younger than King himself, but still growing up in an age where greasers are the primary bullies of the time. Another trope King would use time and again. Sometimes their inclusion doesn't make sense, as I called out in my review of Carrie. But for stories set in the 1950s, the reference is at least timely. And those evil Fonzies are the bad guys in both the body and sometimes. And they each consist of a gang of exceedingly violent, downright murderous greaser bullies. Robert Lawson and Sometimes They Come Back is nothing but an early version of Ace Merrill, and each have their gang of lackeys with unique traits. But the similarities grow the deeper I read. In the body, the kids are walking along a train track, leading to a memorable scene where they're high up on a train trestle and have to run for their lives from a speeding locomotive. In Sometimes They Come Back, Norman and his brother Wayne are walking along a train trestle when Lawson and his buddies start to mug them. The loud sound of a train whistle is repeated several times in this night shift story, coming every time the action reaches its climax, first with the murder of Wayne, and then again later in the story. There are some more ties here. Jim Norman was taking care of his cancer-ridden mother right before his breakdown, an echo of Night Shift's later short story, The Woman in the Room. Jim Norman has a book on how to raise demonic spirits, much like the book referenced in The Mangler. I can go on, but I think the most direct comparison of King's work has to be with his 1977 novel, The Shining. As I've mentioned in some of my previous podcasts, in the early 1970s, before becoming a published novelist, King was an English teacher himself. He often takes aspects of his own life and uses them for his fiction. More and more in his later fiction, we'll find novelists at the center of his stories. As such, having his early stories focus on English teachers wouldn't be shocking. However, reading about Jim Norman and Sometimes They Come Back, I just couldn't stop thinking of Jack Torrance from The Shining. Not only are both men high school English teachers, but both suffered emotional breaks that cost them their jobs. In The Shining, Jack Torrance lost his temper and beat a student. Here, Jim lost his job when he couldn't return to a school where he saw a student beaten. Both men have to then search for jobs where they can rebuild their careers. Jim finds his at a new school in this anonymous New England town. Jack finds his at the Overlook Hotel. Not only are those arcs the same, but the writing structure is almost identical as well. Both stories open with the man interviewing for the position and both have a scene of the anxious wife awaiting news on if their husband found a new job. But at these new jobs, both teachers are besieged by ghosts from the past. As The Shining is one of my favorite King novels, I find it really interesting to see this vestigial form of that story. It's obvious reading Sometimes They Come Back that King knew he had something here that could be a novel. At 30 pages, it's one of the longest stories collected in Night Shift, and it feels at times paced more like a novel than a short story and Sometimes They Come Back was written around the same time as King started The Shining. It was in late 1973 that King visited the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, giving him the inspiration for his third novel, and this story was published in early 1974. But King refined so many things in The Shining that I feel are left dangling in this short story. For example, The Shining clearly defines that the Overlook Hotel is haunted. It's an idea King first put forth in Salem's Lot, that places can hold an emotional charge of bad things that have happened there. And that's why not one, but two caretakers at the Overlook Hotel try to kill their families. The hotel was quite simply haunted. And you put a haunted man in a haunted place, and exciting things happen. And sometimes they come back. Jim Norman has ghosts returned from his past. But there's no reason why. The high school where Jim teaches isn't haunted. It's a fairly modern building. More... These sociopathic spooks aren't confined to the school. It's revealed they're murdering the students they replace, and they can go anywhere in town to do it. Further, Robert Lawson and his crew aren't even from this unnamed town where Jim now teaches. By having them enroll in school, complete with transcripts, even disciplinary records from a non-existent Milford High School in Stratford, it makes me wonder who the spooky secretary was that typed up these forged documents. No, with The Shining, King got it very right. Set up a place where the normal rules of everyday life don't apply and put characters in it. And sometimes they come back, the lack of why and how frustrate me. I want to know what makes Jim Norman so special that these ghosts travel across space and time to kill him. And I want to know why they picked this specific time, this specific school. Why were they not at Norman's first teaching job? Or why not wait another decade? It's been 16 years since Wayne was killed. Sometimes they come back, but why do they come back now? And coming where this story does in Night Shift, I actually hoped the story would take the twist I saw in I Am The Doorway and leave us with an unreliable narrator. The story isn't in first-person form like so many Night Shift stories, but it's written in a strong third-person point of view, so we follow Jim exclusively through these events. And Jim has been tormented for a decade and a half by his brother's death. He has nightmares about it. It was part of the reason, a big part, for his original breakdown. Perhaps Jim is going mad and imagining these ghosts. Maybe he's even killing his own students and blaming it on the demons from the past. And King plays with this idea in the prose. Jim wonders if he is having another breakdown. Unfortunately, it's fully and completely explained away. King leaves no ambiguity here. There are ghosts. As King writes, quote, It was crazy, it was lunacy, but it was also a fact. Sixteen years ago, this kid had driven a knife into his brother. But why? How? These are the questions that I was asking while I read, waiting for the story to give me the answer, and I was frustrated that King never explains it away. But even more, the story, in its final pages, raises similar questions. And here's where that spoiler I mentioned earlier begins. To try and combat these visitant villains, Jim does what any English teacher would do. He reads a book. This particular book is called Raising Demons, and it details for Jim a ritual that can raise a spirit that may help Jim ward off these bloodthirsty bogeys. It involves an incantation, a pentagram, a sacrifice, and so on. If Jim has to jump through these hoops, what did the greasers do? There is one line, one throwaway line, that Lawson drops, saying he put a hex on Jim during the police lineup back in the 50s. But how does a dumb greaser like Lawson know about demonic possession? And did he arbitrarily pick 16 years later to do it? There are other things dropped as well that King never picks up. For instance, there were four greasers involved in the mugging and murder of Wayne. Two of the four were involved in the actual stabbing of the boy. But of the four, only three died in a car accident. The fourth lived on. He became a father, joined the military, he got his life in order and went straight. What's the point of that fourth character? If he's not a ghost, will he come back in the story as a 30-year-old man? Nope. We never see him. It's frustrating that King World builds in such a way that provides no payoff. Characters are introduced just to drop away. And the story ends on a mysterious note, like many of the Night Shift stories, that the evil may not be completely gone. And it wasn't. It would come back in a much, much more fulfilling way and fleshed out way in The Shining. But believe it or not, there is one thing I actually think sometimes they come back did better than The Shining. And that's the ghosts that do come back. I like that Jim is haunted by his past. I really found it exciting that the ghosts are people who Jim has a history with. It's another repeated King notion that actions in the past must echo in the present to fully get closure, but it's a motif I think he does really well in ways that never feel redundant. In The Shining, all the ghosts are people from the far past, people Jack Torrance never knew. Briefly, Jack's father comes back from the dead for one good scare, but by and large, The ghosts are new friends, not old enemies. I like that Jim is personally connected to his tormentors, and that, as an adult, he has a chance to put to rest a terror he's lived with for 16 years. I also really want to commend King's writing style here. This is a short story that feels as well-written and detailed as one of King's novels. It goes quick, but we really get to spend some time with Jim Norman as he struggles with his challenging class through the fall semester, and then refreshes his attitude during the holiday break. The action continually escalates, but then King takes a break for a couple of pages to allow us to mourn one of the characters Lawson and his gang murder. The death itself was lackluster, it's supposed to come as a shock to the reader rather than a drawn out horror, but that we get a bit of time to deal with the passing is rare in short form fiction. And King's prose is sharp. This was written after Carrie, during the same period as Salem's Lot and The Shining, and it shows because King's knack for word choice is strong. His descriptions are vivid and make me feel a sense of place. And I mentioned the dream in which we recount the death of the brother Wayne. It's done in the second person. You watch as your brother is stabbed. Very effective. Makes it really hit home. Also, I mentioned earlier that Jim Norman has to make a sacrifice per the ritual. And reading King's description of what occurs in that ritual made me wince. And I'm not talking about the cat if you read the story. I also think King has, in this story, really encapsulated a teacher's point of view. Now I should reveal, I myself was a teacher. I taught college classes for seven years, and I know some of the torment King writes about. I know that feeling of having to flunk a student who cheated or who didn't do the work, and having that student get so furious and vow revenge. I also get why King sets the climax of this story in a classroom, narratively it doesn't really work that the greasers in gym would have a showdown in the school. After all, these aren't real students, they're ghosts. But to a teacher, the classroom is where all showdowns take place. Often, relations with rebellious or disinterested students feel like an escalating war. Eventually, you know a standoff has to come, and sometimes these showdowns take place in administrative offices, but all too often, they take place in the classroom itself, in front of an audience of all the other students. It's a point of view I think only a teacher could appreciate, or perhaps a student who really has a grudge against his teacher. Still, I think Jim and the Ghost should have ended on train tracks, rather than at a school. But there is another point of view King brings to this story. It's subtle, but I see in this tale King saying the greasers he feared as a kid are still in the school system. See, Robert Lawson and his gang don't come back in the 1970s as greasers. They aren't wearing leather jackets and have their hair greased back. They still use 50 slang, but they dress like the juvenile delinquents of the time. King writes, quote, No question about this one. The crew cut had been replaced by long hair, but it was still blonde, and the face was the same. Yes, this is King writing about a ghost come back from the grave, But I also read it as King seeing the same disaffected malevolence in his students that he saw a decade earlier in his peers. The politics of adolescence hasn't really changed in 70 years, let alone 20. That same type of dynamic helped King reach so many youthful readers, kids like me who felt King was someone who really understood how menacing playground politics can feel. They wear the attire of their time but the same kids sat at the back of the bus smoking a cigarette in the 50s, the 70s, and the 90s. So in the end, I feel Sometimes They Come Back isn't a great story, but it is a great idea. It's a tale that wasn't fleshed out fully. There's shades of greatness in this story, and yeah, I think this could have been a really good novel. But it feels rushed. King was done with the idea and just let it run out. It's a shame, too. But part of me wonders if this story idea was intended to be a full novel when King began. King's mentioned in interviews that when this story was published, he was paid $500, and it's the most he'd ever gotten for a short story at that time. More, he needed that $500. It went to pay for medicine his daughter needed. Despite having Carrie accepted for publication, King was still struggling to pay his bills. And during the early 70s, he'd often sell short stories to help bridge his family's budget. So perhaps he took this idea for a novel and quickly slapped it together as something short, something sellable, to help cover the bills. That would help explain why the climax of the story feels so tacked on and perfunctory. But sometimes they come back, they being King's story ideas. So everything I liked about this story, I'll like even more in a later King work. And if this short story helped his daughter to get over an illness, that's a great thing, despite it being mediocre fiction. If this story's aborted lifespan helped spur on King's creativity to revisit the material and do it better with The Shining, The Body, and others, so much the better still. But this is a story I feel has promise. King has created a world ripe for expansion. I envisioned this as a novel, but Hollywood saw it as a screenplay. King actually wanted Sometimes They Come Back to be one of the short stories in Cat's Eye, but Dino De Laurentiis, the famous film producer said Sometimes They Come Back deserved to be its own feature, and in 1991 it would become one, although it's a TV movie made for CBS. And sometimes that movie came back, well, two more times, actually, as there's a total of three movies based on this short story. And I'll say right up front, I feel the screenplay actually addresses a lot of the frustration points I had with this original short. But I won't go into that here. At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear Stuart, Jacob, and I as we watch and review all three Sometimes They Come Back films. I hope you'll join us. And I also hope that sometimes you'll come back to the Books at Nachos forums and let me know your thoughts on this King short story. This was a bit of a longer review in the Night Shift series, and one that took a lot of time to research, write, record, and release, but I do it because I love talking with other Stephen King constant readers about his works. So please, come back to the forums and share your thoughts. And as for me, well, some weeks I come back with another Stephen King review, and next week is one of those. Since Now Playing is spending three weeks on this short story, I'm going to continue with Night Shift stories that weren't made into films. Next week, I'll be reviewing Battleground, the eighth short story as printed in Night Shift. And so I hope that sometimes you come back to listen to that review, and in the meantime, Please remember to support your local bookstore.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.